So we are making our way towards the end of the book of Numbers. We're on the home stretch. This is the final cycle of the book. The book goes in cycles of narrative and then uh, regulation and then narrative regulation. And so we're in chapter 30, but what you have to keep in mind is, uh, excuse me, chapter 31, you have to keep in mind chapter 31 is the continuation of the things that happen in chapter 25. And chapter 25 has been a few weeks since we've looked at that. We've been in, there's been regulations, there's been that structural pattern where it breaks the action and deals with the structure and the setup of Israel's life. So we have to jump back to Numbers 25 before we go to Numbers 31, because if you just plow into Numbers 31, you, you, you don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it, and I teach this for a living. Um, apart from Numbers 25, Numbers 31 is inexplicable at best, and uh, horrendous at worst. So, remember what happened in Numbers 25. This is, this is important. Numbers 25 was the... the, 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 the yeah, right? <clears throat> Numbers 25 was the low point of the book of Numbers. It was, it was the bottom. Um, it was the final rebellion by Israel. It was when Israel, that generation, yoked itself to Baal. Uh, and the text used that word, yoked themselves to the Baals of Peor. And Israel, basically, that generation, the previous generation, high-handedly, wantonly, openly rebelled against God by entering into sexual idolatrous relationships with the women of Midian. Midian and Moab were this confederation of peoples and some of these particular Midianites, Midianites were scattered all up and down. Like Moses, Moses married into a Midianite family. Right? His father-in-law, Jethro, high priest of Midian. His wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite. So Midianites aren't universally evil and they're not one specific people like the Egyptians. They didn't have an empire. They were nomads. They were Bedouin. They were travelers. And it was more of a a title, um, I don't know if we have a, I can't think of a good parallel in modern culture, but it was like, it was more of a widespread designation of types of people rather than an ethnicity or a localized government. So Midianites, um, if you think of a good example, let me know, but off the top of my head, they're just, they were all over. So this text, there were specific Midianites and they were the ones at uh, Baor. And they were the ones who led Israel into idolatry by using their women to do so. Remember, this was all during the Balaam cycle, or Balaam, as he's pronounced in the Greek. The, the, and when we looked at that, you saw that Balaam said to the, the, the king, the Moabite kings, you can't, you're not going to defeat these people. You know, he gave the highest prophecy in, in, in the Torah of Israel's national destiny and said, God's, you can't curse them. They're blessed. And but that didn't stop them from trying. And that didn't stop the Moabite Midianite coalition from trying to, okay, if we can't attack them and we can't supernaturally curse them with, with, through Bilaam, then let's get them to separate themselves from that covenant protection. Let's get them to come out from behind the shield that is God and then they'll self-destruct. You know, every empire before it falls externally falls from within. So if we can get them to destroy, to sabotage their relationship with their covenant God who's protecting them, then they fall. That was their plan. And we find out later that was actually Bilaam's suggestion to 
the Midianites and the Moabites is to do that. Use the women, your women. Your, your culture is one of sexual promiscuity to a, a ridiculous degree in terms of your idolatry and the whole worship cycle we talked about with Baal. It was all done through sexuality. And so use that to lure these Israelites away from their covenant relationship with God and then they'll no longer be under His protection. So God's judgment then in chapter 25 uh, it, it burned, first of all, it get burned against Israel. I mean, there was, in that incident, that generation was punished and that generation died in the desert. Um, there was, God sent a plague, you know, 24,000 or 24 elephs, however you want to number those. We've talked about that all throughout this year. Uh, of Israelites died in that plague. So God's first punishment was against His people. But that doesn't leave the guilty party unpunished. Because now we pick up in chapter 31. Now he turns to the Midianites. See, chapter 25, in, uh, in that section, it ended by him saying, um, verse 16, the end of chapter 25 says, the Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and strike them or kill them because they, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor and their sister Cosby, the daughter of the Midianite leader, and his name is Zur, we'll see him in a minute, um, so this Midianite princess, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. So the Peor incident was Israel turning away through apostasy at the behest of the Midianite women, which was done through the, the, the planning of Bilaam, the prophet. So all of this is all related. And so God ends that chapter by saying, treat them as you were treated in this instance. These Midianites did this to you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. These Midianites cursed you. Treat them now with that same exercise my covenant justice, my covenant vindication. You be my judgment on these people. So this is not God saying carte blanche, kill all Midianites. We know that wasn't the case because Midianites appear long after this in Scripture. Sometimes enemies, sometimes just like other peoples of the area. But this case, the, the judgment on Midian that God announced in church, uh, verse 16 of chapter 25 is delayed for six chapters. Now we come to where it picks it up and chapter 31 says, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you'll be gathered to your people, which means you'll die. This is Moses' final act. There's one thing that remains undone in Moses' life is this reciprocal punishment that had to go to the Midianites. Now, that word vengeance, not a great English translation, because the, the word in the actual Hebrew word, Nakam, it means the idea of vindication. But what is vindication for some is usually vengeance for the other. In other words, God's vindication of the innocent implicitly includes punishment of the guilty. Many times. That's what all the theme of the, prof the prophets when you read about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be celebrated as a glorious day in some instances, but in other instances when it's describing those who are evildoers, the day of the Lord is horrendous. And it's, that's kind of how it is with God's judgment. That's paradigmatic. God's judgment is, is a day of celebration for those who are longing for His judgment, like the vindication, and it's also a day of terror for those who fall under His judgment because of their evil doing. So this is the part where God's 
judgment is being enacted. In Numbers, Numbers 31, his judgment drops, and it drops severely. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites and carry out the Lord's vengeance slash vindication on them. Send into battle a thousand men or one eleph of men. We've talked about this, but if you haven't been here all year, the word for thousand in Hebrew is eleph, but that's also the word for either, the, the, that's also the word for division, regiment, uh, sometimes it's even used of like a herd, like a group of livestock. So you, you can't press for, okay, this has to be a thousand, and there's reasons for that. If you missed it, we won't go into it now, but just hop on the podcast and catch up. That's why we record all these. Go back to chapter one, the first week that we did this, in the discussion of the numbers and numbers. But take, I'm just going to use thousand because that's what the text says, but with, the, with, the knowing, with you knowing that thousand can also be the term used to describe a group of fighters that may not necessarily be a thousand. So it says, uh, send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe, were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, who took with him articles from the sanctuary or holy vessels and the trumpets for signaling. What trumpets? Well, the trumpets we've already talked about. That was back in, I think, around chapter 10 or so. The trumpets that would blow, that would lead Israel into battle. This is the first time now that Israel is giving their marching orders. This entire chapter is a prefiguring of what's going to happen in the book of Joshua. This is the first. This is like a preview of coming attractions. Remember, why was Israel called out of Egypt into Canaan? To have their own land? Yeah, sort of. To have their own land and do something else? Yes. And that something else was to be the instrument of God's judgment on the particular peoples that God had given 400 years and whose wickedness had reached its full measure, as God told Abraham back in Genesis 15. So you can't read any of these stories apart from that larger picture of the Torah. What's going on? Why is Israel going into Canaan? They're going in to judge the wickedness of God's enemies. They're going in to judge, just like God used flood on the world, just like God used fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, just like God used plague on Egypt, God's using the sword on these particular Canaanite groups. And that's something that, if that makes us uncomfortable, then so be it. We just got to deal with it. Like that's, that's the God of Scripture. is not a tameable God, and He's not a God that does things that we like all the time. And that's okay. We don't have to. Um, so they are going to be God's instrument of judgment. So this chapter is just giving them a preview of that. Hey, this is your first kind of foray into what you're about to do in Canaan. And it's against this group. Why? Were the Midianites supposed to be targeted because they were part of the Canaanites? No. They were targeted because these Midianites were targeted because they specifically tried to destroy God's covenant people. Just like the Amalekites did. That's why they're targeted as well. So there were the peoples who were ripe for God's judgment, which are the particular peoples of Canaan listed in Genesis 15. And then there are the peoples who ally themselves with the Canaanites in such a way by standing against trying to destroy God's people. God didn't give Israel carte blanche to go around the, the area and just, you know, it's not like this is Old Testament jihad where it's like infidels, kill them if they don't convert. God never did that. 
He didn't tell Israel to, to destroy the Philistines. He didn't tell Israel to destroy the Egyptians. He didn't tell them to destroy the Assyrians. He didn't tell them to destroy many, many, many peoples. He actually only told them specifically to destroy these particular peoples in the particular land of Canaan. So people throughout history have taken these chapters and they've looked at Holy War chapters in the Bible and they've said, ah, that's the God of the Old Testament and that's what He desires. And it's not. It's not. It's the exception rather than the norm. By a long shot, it's the exception. In fact, there's no other time in Israel's history when they were commanded to destroy, to annihilate anyone else. Ever. It was only this particular time. God's purpose was to purge the identity of the Canaanites, not the ethnicity of the Canaanites. How do we know this? Because some of the Canaanites became faithful Israelites. Some of the Moabites became faithful Israelites. One even got a book named after her. Some of the Midianites became faithful Israelites. Think of Moses' father-in-law, his wife. So again, God, when people say, well, it's Old Testament genocide. No, genocide and ethnic cleansing, those are to wipe out people groups or ethnicities or racial things that are deemed unfit. No, this was idolatricide, if you want to make up a word, or religicide. I don't know what you'd call paganicide. What? This was Baalicide. That's a better word for it. This was Baalicide. This was wiping out these peoples. And there's lists. The, the Old Testament tells us what the practices of... I mean, these, the, the practice of the things. First of all, the, these Midianites, their practices. Send your women to lure them through sexual idolatrous worship of Baal. That in and of itself gives you an idea of the character of these people people as a whole. The people also in the area, they worship Baal, or they worship Asher, or they worship Anath, or they worship Chemosh. These gods used either orgiastic sexual practices, or in the case of Chemosh at least, child sacrifice in order to receive blessing from the gods. So the practices that Leviticus 18 called out, you know, you will not do these things, and there's everything from, from, from having sex with your mother to having sex with an animal. Like it listed all these things. Remember that last year if you were here. And it said, do not do these things because these things were done by the people in the land. And if you do them, the land will vomit you out just like it is going to vomit out these peoples. And the vomiting out is going to happen as Israel drives them out. That's the plan. So all of this, the reason that this is kind of like, okay, let's get back to the text. Well, this is all background. Because the worst thing people do, whether fundamentalists or skeptics, the worst thing they do is they come to this chapter and they read it in isolation. And this is then they form their idea of God based on this chapter, and then they read everything else through that lens. No, there's been three books and 30 chapters before this. And it's important to know those passages and those stories. To know that before there was ever a command to utterly destroy them, there was, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? As Abraham said when God was threatening judgment on Sodom. Or there is, you know, God going out of His way to track down in the wilderness a, a, a pagan woman who had been used as a concubine and who wanted to die because she was left alone. And God's saying, no, no, I'm watching over you and I'm actually going to bless you and your son. And He's going to become a great nation alongside His brother as well. This is the kind of God that's been introduced and been on display throughout. Only now do we come to these sections. But... All that to say, it still is pretty nauseating reading what happens in this chapter. And if it's not, there's something wrong with you. I mean, really, if you're a Christian and reading this doesn't disturb you, you have a problem. 
And there are too many cre- preachers who come to these passages and just try to make it sound like, no, 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 it's great, it's fine. No, it's horrible. And sometimes God does things that from our perspective are just horrible. And we can't see how, the, how do we reconcile this. We don't know. In some cases, we have to say we don't know. And this is, this is a prime example of this passage. Moses sent them into battle along with Phineas, the priest who took with him the articles in the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. Why did he mention Phineas? One, Eliezer, his dad, can't go out to battle. Why? He's the high priest. High priests can't become contaminated by touching dead bodies. In battle, there are lots of dead bodies. Two, who is Phineas? Well, back in chapter 25, he was the one that stopped the plague. He was the one that judged, put his judgment on Cosby and the Israelite that had been with her right at the temple at the uh, tabernacle entrance. He was the antidote to Balaam's scheme. So now he is going to be the judge of Balaam's life. And we see that in this very next passage. Verse 7, they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man among, uh, killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Kings is a loose term in the Old Testament. Melek. It can mean anything from a tribal elder to the ruler Pharaoh. It just means person in charge. So the Midianites, in this case, they were five of these loose confederated peoples. Well, Zur, we've already met him by way of his daughter, Cosby, who Phineas put to death. So now Phineas is going to the root of that and actually exercising judgment on her father, one of the Midianite chiefs. Verse 9, the Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. Right there, that should be a wait a minute moment. The Israelites captured all the Midianite women. The Midianite women were the ones who had done the thing that they're being sent to judge right now. They were the ones who were to be judged along with the Midianite men. Eh, eh, maybe. Eh, it's getting a little bit outside of what Numbers is saying. <laughs> there, I mean, maybe, but that's a whole different issue. They were, we talked about they were seen as, compared to the Anakites and grasshoppers in their eyes as what the spies had said. But Israel, in this case, the Midianite women, I mean, these, these were the women who had specifically done what chapter 25 was about. So, did Israel spare the women because they were benevolent? Eh, maybe, but it's hard to say. Did they spare them because the Midianite women were enticing? Well, that's the whole thing that happened that started this off to begin with. So, we don't know. Again, we just need to not, we've we got to be careful of not filling in all the details and just sticking with what the text says. The text says that they did this, they took them as capture. Verse 10, they burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled, as well as their camps. And camps means their military, like encampments is a better word. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and the animals, and brought the captive spoils and plunder to Moses and Eleazar the priest and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. This is where you'd expect, hey, we're the returning army victorious, and here's the plunder that we brought. And plunder was how you did ancient warfare, by the way. Plunder is like a pirate word for us today. 
because when, when we think of plunder, we think of like pirates, you know, Somalis that hijack cargo ships or even like pirate pirates with parrot and the eye patch. Um, but that was what happened in war in the ancient Near East. You, you attacked the people and then you just didn't leave everything there, the animals to just roam around and you no, know, you took the stuff. That's part of it. And so they do this and you expect, the, the people at least expect Moses is going to be excited. We did what you commanded, right? No. No, just like Samuel will do much later with Saul in a, in a very similar account. Moses says, uh, Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands, commanders of the hundreds who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So he's like, no. This is, this, they were not to be spared. This is the part where we, looking at Moses at least, are like, ooh, that's harsh. And it, and it gets harsher. Verse 17, Now, kill all the boys or young men and kill every woman who has slept with a man or marriage age or, or any of that, but save or preserve alive for you every girl who has never slept with a man. So in other words, the only people that are going to be spared are the women, or the girls, who have not entered into this sexual relationships yet, but all of the women who have are under judgment and all of the boys who are going to grow up to be Midianites that will avenge all of this are also to be put to death because the identity of Midian would be carried patrilineally. It would be carried through who you're the son of. So if the boys are alive, the boys live on as the son of so-and-so who was killed by the Israelites, growing up among the Israelites that will become a thorn in their side. Now, it sounds harsh. It is harsh. I mean, it, it just it sounds harsh and we don't need to mitigate it, but it's what God commands at this point in Israel's history. Sending a plague against Israel sounds harsh, but God did it. Destroying Achan and his family later in Joshua because they kept some of the things that were supposed to be given to the Lord completely. That sounds harsh, but God did it. So this is where our theology needs to be shaped by Scripture rather than our theology shaping Scripture. You know, we, 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 we come to this and we say, if we like God, we come to this and go, oh, well, God didn't really approve of all that. You know, after all, God didn't say kill all the boys. Moses said it. So this could be an incident where Moses is overstepping his bounds. Maybe. That's a true point. But we don't get anywhere where God rebukes him for it or says, hey, slow your roll, Moses. We don't get that. So, we're left with, this is harsh, and this seems unfair to us. It does to me when I read this passage, and I'm, I'm an Old Testament guy, I love Torah, I teach it for a living regularly, I translate it, I do all this, I mean, this is, this is God's holy word, I stand fully under the authority of Scripture, I do not believe it's an imperfect record by ancient nomadic peoples, I don't believe it's a collection of old tales from a time before they knew better. I don't believe it has anything in it that would contradict the Jesus that comes along in the New Testament who claims to embody the Old Testament. I don't believe it. So when I come to this passage, what do I do? I have to say, God, I don't know how this fits. I mean, I really don't. I, I, can, I can think of things that mitigate it some, that make it not as horrible as it seems to be on the surface. Concepts like, all doesn't always mean all. We've seen that before. When all the world came to Joseph to buy grain, it didn't mean that 
you know, people were boating over from Australia to buy grain from him in Egypt. No, it means all of this world. I, so maybe this is like generic language for destroy them all, meaning like wipe out the identity. Were there a few exceptions? Were there a few survivors? Were there some who maybe turned and joined God's people? Maybe, don't know. It happened elsewhere in Scripture with people who were put under this judgment order. So maybe that happened. I don't know. And I'm willing to give God the benefit of the doubt because of everything else that I read about Him. And that's the key. This passage will determine how you view God based on how you are predetermined to view God. It's like if you see a, a parent smack a kid in the mouth. If you don't know anything and you just walk up and see an adult slap a kid, that's going to make you angry. It'll make me angry. And I teach kids and you know, teach them to defend themselves. And that's going to really be, you know. But if you find out that that kid just stole something from the store or that kid just beat up another kid or bullied another kid, you know, or you find I mean, Finding stuff out that informs the situation oftentimes then go, okay, so even if you're against spanking, you still are like, okay, well, that's understandable. It wasn't the parent abusing the child for the sake of abusing. It was the parent disciplining the child. And even if you don't think that discipline is right, whether you stand on spanking, that's up to you. I got spanked all the time. I'm better for it. Um, but the point being, if you learn these background notions, then it mitigates some of that initial shock. Well, it's the same with the Old Testament and the violent passages where God seems to command things that don't mesh with what we read in the New Testament. If you just come to that, you're like, whoa, whoa, God, hold on. I don't like this. Well, that's okay. That should be the natural reaction when you encounter violence, especially against women and children. Because everywhere in Scripture we read how God's always like uphold the plight of who? The orphan and the widow. Well, in this case, it was the orphans and widows who were to be put to death with the exception of the girls. And because their husbands, the fathers, had been killed. So they naturally become orphans and widows. So when God, who goes out of His way in both Testaments to uphold the plight of the defenseless, the orphan, the widow, all of that stuff, when we come to an instance where He seems to allow for them to be hit hard, then we're just like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to fit. And we can do one of two things. We can either say, well, that's a contradiction, so this is not God's Word and I don't believe any of it. Or we can say, well, God, I don't see how that fits in with what you say about yourself in the rest of Scripture. But I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt until I know more. Until I know more. Because the only person that can judge the thoughts, intentions, and the lifespan of every person who's ever lived is the judge of all the earth. So whether it's flood or sword, the result is still the same. So this gets to the issue of us having problems with, with how God exercises His justice and His judgment when it looks like, from our eyes, that's not very just. And it's not something that we would do, and it's not something that God does elsewhere in Scripture that much. Um, so as you're... I, I don't want to tell you what to believe about this chapter. I just want us to walk through it. We'll look next week of what happens. But as you're reading through this chapter, wrestle with it. I mean, wrestle with God over this. That's what reading Scripture is. If you just read Scripture and you agree and love everything you read, I don't think you're reading closely enough. You know, it's always going to push us. It's always going to, to pull us. There's a couple of resources, though, so you won't be on your own, that I wanted to specifically mention, especially since we're recording for the podcast. 
Two, one resource that, that I think is fantastic that puts all of this, not just the warfare, but everything Old Testament into perspective is Chris Wright in his Old Testament ethics for the people of God. Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic book that gives you a window into the ethics of the Old Testament in its context and then says, now how can we pull out the principles that are there and exercise them in our context without doing a one-to-one reading? So highly worth reading. The other one, and this is the better title, I think, is God a Moral Monster. And this is uh, Paul Copan, and he wrote the, he, Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And he basically takes a head-on look at these passages, passages about slavery, um, passages just about God and judgment. And it's like, whoa, God, is he, are you a monster? Because you seem like it in some of these passages. And so he goes through and he actually walks through all of the details of this. And at the end, comes to largely the conclusion that we're suggesting today, which is there are things that inform how we see these passages, but at the end of the day, they're still not comfortable, and they shouldn't be. This should be a bit upsetting on one level or another. Um, and if they're not, again, there's something wrong with you. If, if the idea of putting to death boys and, and women doesn't offend you, wow, <laughs> it should, and it's okay if it does. And God put it in Scripture for us, and Jesus never once corrected it. Jesus never once said, I have come to fulfill all that was written in Scripture except Numbers 31. That wasn't reflective of me. And there are preachers and there are leaders in my denomination, I happen to be Methodist, in my denomination who will stand up and go, well, there are parts of the Bible that reflect God and then there are parts of the Bible that don't reflect God. And those we put in this bucket. And the ones that we like about God, we put in this bucket. And the ones we're not sure of, we put in this bucket. There's a famous preacher who's written a whole book about that and given talks all over the place. And I'm just thinking, Really? you then become the arbiter of what goes in what bucket. Jesus had one bucket. And it was that this is the Word of God for His people. But does that mean that it was all nice, pleasant, or easy to understand? No. It's a big bucket. It's got a lot of weird stuff in the bucket. Um, but that's what we're trying to do as we go through it. But we're out of time now, so next week we'll pick up, we'll look at what happens in the rest of this chapter, and, um, and then we're going to move on because we're at the end. We're closing in to the end of Book of Numbers. But we got to go. So back to work, back to your day. Take some seconds if you want it, and uh, we'll see you next time.